we are winding up our series on Target this morning. If you're a guest with us today, we've been in a series talking about how we can get beyond these walls and into the community. And we're, we're delighted that you're here as we wind this up. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're delighted that you are worshiping with us as, as well. And so we want to we wanna complete this this morning by talking about this simple challenge, yes to love, outwardly. And since this is Valentine's Day, it seems an appropriate day to be talking about loving someone else. As a matter of fact, I, I want to begin this morning by simply recognizing anybody in our midst who has been married for 50 years or more. As a matter of fact, if you are a widow or a widower and you were married to your spouse for 50 years or more before they died, I want you to stand as well. If you're a couple or if you're a widow or widower with 50 years or more marriage experience, would you please stand? Let me first of all offer my congratulations to you. Thanks for doing a great job. And thanks for being an inspiration and a model for the rest of us who are trudging our way through this wonderful experience of marriage. Um, you know, this business of finding true love that lasts for a lifetime can be a bittersweet process. There are good days and there are bad days. There are days filled with good news and there are days filled with bad news. I suppose no one knows that better than Gary Kremen, who is the founder of Match.com. The website is a great success. That's the good news. But Gary lost his girlfriend to a man she met on Match.com. <laughs> and that's just hard to celebrate that kind of success, isn't it? <laughs> a successful marriage requires sacrifice. You don't reach 50 years of marriage. Well, actually, you don't reach a handful of years of marriage without a concept of sacrifice. It's a give and take. And actually, it's more give than take if you want your marriage to be successful. Franklin P. Jones wrote, he said, what makes love a rare game is that there are either two winners or none. Sacrifice is a part of this marvelous relationship of love. We have folks in this congregation who have donated vital organs to others as a symbol of sacrificial love. We have others that are waiting for that same kind of a sacrifice from someone else. Sacrifice is just a part of what love demands. God understands that better than anyone. And if you don't think he does, you just go take a second look at the cross if that doesn't spell sacrificial love, nothing else does. And when God established his church in this world, it was with the intention that his church would model that same kind of sacrificial love. The early church, I think, picked up on that pretty quickly. In Acts chapter 4, the history book of the church, beginning in verse 32, this is what we read about our ancient forefathers in the faith. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. We began this series with a 
look at the first half of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now that is the upward focus of our vision shorthand, Yes to Love, Loving God. We are going to end this series with the second half of the great commandment, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is the outward focus of our mission, vision, shorthand, Yes to Love. And that's just exactly what we see in the first century church from this passage in the book of Acts. They were outwardly loving others to demonstrate their upward love for God. They were taking care of one another. Now that's love, that sacrificial kind of love. Did you notice how the passage began? It begins with these words, all the believers were in one heart and mind, or all the believers were one in heart and mind. Either way you look at it, it says the same. That has to be one of the most positive descriptions in the Bible about the life of the church. All, not some. One, not divided. Heart and mind. The word mind is actually the word soul here. Heart and soul. The two components that are necessary for faith. Intellectual acceptance and heartfelt trust. Now, I wish the 21st century church was making just such an impact. Instead, we sometimes leave the impression that we'd rather be divided and fighting instead of blazing a trail of united love and service to others. I think it is at this very beginning point where the change needs to take place. They were one in heart and mind. That's where we need to change it. And, and Luke's carefully worded statement here in, in the book of Acts really captures the, the feeling of both the Greek culture and their understanding of friendship and the Old Testament uh, Hebrew culture and their understanding of friendship. In the Greek understanding, a friend was, or a friendship between two people uh, was simply one soul living in two bodies. I like that picture. One soul living in two bodies. Our word soulmate maybe captures that essence better than anything else. The Old Testament ideal of friendship was this. It is utmost loyalty. If you're going to be a friend with somebody, you are going to be loyal to that person to the very end. And both of these principles seem to come together in the way the early church reacted to the needs around them. Now, before we go any farther, can I just explain and set the record straight on a couple things? Because through the years, I've heard people use this passage of Scripture to take it out of context and to suggest that it's saying something that it really isn't saying. I want you to know that the church was never involved in some form of communal living. This was not a commune, as we commonly think of the term. Nor was the church practicing a governmental form of communistic socialism where only a very few have all the wealth and all the power and the general public suffer in forced equality that destroys any motivation for a person to do his or her best. This was a voluntary, family-like desire to help those in need. This was true friendship with both ideals at work. This was genuine fellowship, which means to have all things in common. You see, when such sacrifice is forced, it never works. But when it flows from a singular purposed mind, when it flows from the mind of Christ as we understand it, it can work. And did you notice that they took care of their own before they went outside the walls? You see, genuinely helping somebody else really 
doesn't make sense unless you are genuinely helping those who are closest to you. It's, it's a both and, not an either or. And then Luke, in his masterful way, gives two illustrations of helping. Now this is where chapter divisions in the Bible sometimes mess us up a little bit. <clears throat> Luke goes from chapter 4 into chapter 5. He didn't call the chapter divisions. But this is all one story. And the two illustrations are these. The first one is Barnabas, a man whose name means encouragement or encourager, sold some of his land, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to the people who had need. That's the good story. The second illustration, he says, but there were others, Ananias and Sapphira, who also had land, who sold their land, pocketed part of the money, gave the rest to the apostles and said, that's everything we got for the land, and they died in the middle of the worship service, which, which would be a little unsettling in a worship service. I get it. But Luke gives us two illustrations. One that says this is the proper way to be benevolent in your giving. The other one is improper motives negate whatever you do. It's not hard to see his point. Proper benevolent motives bring life and encouragement. Negative improper motives have consequences that are negative. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, consequences of death. Now here's the point. Luke says... There's a right way to give. And the early church practiced helping without hurting. You want a summary of the early church from this passage? There, there are 10 bullet points right here. Let, let me just go through them really quickly. You want, you want to understand what the early church was like? Just look at this list. The early Christians maintained, first of all, a spirit of unity. One heart and mind. They maintained a spirit of selflessness. No one was tight-fisted with his or her possessions, but freely shared them. There was a spirit of courage. With power, they preached. There was a spirit of conviction. It was not a watered-down, easy-to-understand message. It was a powerful message about the resurrection. There was a spirit of grace that was pervasive. It was over them all. There was a spirit of benevolence. There were no needy persons among them. There was a spirit of sacrifice. They sold houses or lands to meet whatever the need. There was a spirit of trust. They gave the money to the apostles and trusted the church leadership to distribute them as was needed. There's a spirit of inclusion. Anyone who had need. And there was a spirit of encouragement. Barnabas set the bar high and the rest of the church lived up to it. You see, the early church was helping without hurting. Now, most scholars will tell you that they do not believe that selling everything is intended to be a structure for the church of all situations, all generations, and all ages. But the responsibility to care for others in need certainly is a part of the church's structure for all generations. I, I believe that's where we need to go. I believe that's what God's word is calling us to do, to imitate that kind of compassion today. And I'll be honest with you. That's not easy. Sacrificing for others is just not a natural tendency. I think that has to be modeled and taught and learned. From a pure, purely humanistic standpoint of view, if you take God out of the picture, if you take our faith out of the picture, and you simply look at the needs around you from just a human standpoint of view, what is there to motivate us to help? I mean, I'm a human being, you're a human being, I see that you're in need, but I can rationalize that you've probably squandered whatever you've had, or you've wasted your talents, or you've messed things up, so why should I give you my time, my energy, my resources to help you when you just mess it up again? 
From a human standpoint of view, I can rationalize that pretty good. And that way I can hang on to everything that I have. But when you begin to look at the need around you through the eyes of Jesus Christ, you see things differently. I begin to look at you as I see myself, a person in need of his grace and a person in need of someone coming along to help me. I've been helped by lots of people in life. I need to do the same. And I see someone to whom I can be a reflection of Jesus Christ and to be for that person what Jesus Christ would be for that person if he was here in his earthly ministry right now. That's how we need to look at the world. That's how our vision needs to be changed. The church today needs to be one in heart and soul, just like the early church. And without the spirit of Christ and the example of Christ, I can be rather selfish. Personally, I'd like to have it my way. How about you? Amen. Oh, thank you. Don't, <laughs> I don't get many amens, but it had to be on that one, didn't it? So. But you're right. You're right. We, we would like to have it our way. I don't always get it my way. You don't always get it your way. This is what I've learned through the years, however, that I don't have the best ideas all the time. I have some... <laughs> <laughs> I have some good ideas. Well, well, maybe a few good ideas. All right, I've had a couple average ideas through the years. But together, together, working together, we have great ideas, and we have great ways, and we have great means. I'm convinced that when the church comes together, one in heart and mind and spirit and purpose, through the spirit of Christ, we can accomplish great things. And I'm really sort of convinced, folks, that that's really only going to happen in the church. I mean, I don't know any other place where we can lay aside opinions and, 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 the, and our thoughts and our likes and our dislikes and come together on a singular purpose quite like the church. Need I remind you that we are in a presidential election year, which simply illustrates how polarized people can become on opinions. Now, the church hasn't been perfect either. Look how many denominations the church has spun off through the years. But I, I am convinced that when we become one in heart and mind through Jesus Christ, we can come together and make a huge difference. You see, his plan is more important than my plan. His word is superior to my word. His purpose must supersede my purpose and become my purpose. Because only in him can I truly love my neighbor as myself. Apart from him. I'm just not able to love my neighbor like I should. Only in him, only in him can I live out yes to love. Now I've quoted C.W. Vanderberg before, but his words bear repeating again. To love the world for me is no chore. My only real problem is my neighbor next door. It's true, isn't it? Don't tell me you don't feel that way. When somebody looks differently or dresses differently than you do, it's kind of hard to love them, isn't it? When someone thinks so differently than you do, it's kind of hard to love them, isn't it? When someone acts so differently than you do, it's kind of hard to love that person. That's why learning to serve and making the sacrifice is so important. Think of it like this. Good deeds lead to goodwill and goodwill leads to good news. 
The ultimate mission of the church is not physical or emotional or social or financial. It's spiritual. However, however, sometimes the best way to reach the soul is through meeting the physical, emotional, social, or financial needs of somebody who is hurting. And so the heart of the matter is what Jesus can do, but we do that through deeds of service, creating goodwill that leads to good news. And remember where loving God by loving others begins. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes, therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see, there it is. We start with our family and we move outwardly. And what if the church doesn't reach out to our neighbors? Who will? If the church doesn't care about other people, who will care about other people? Just about two years ago, on March the 5th of 2014, a Pontiac, Michigan contractor made a startling discovery in a house where he had been hired to do some repairs. He went in there because the house was being foreclosed on by the bank, and that's when he discovered the mummified body of Pia Ferenkoff. She'd been dead for between five and six years. Her body was found outfitted with winter clothing in her attached garage. Now, because her bills were all paid automatically, including her lawn care, it was all deducted from her bank account, it wasn't until the $54,000 that she had in her account ran out that the bank started foreclosing procedures, and that, of course, led to the discovery of a woman who had been dead in her home for five to six years. Renee Garrett, a nearby neighbor, sadly noted, People need to be closer to each other and check on your neighbors. It's a rare incident, I understand that. But then again, perhaps it speaks to the fact that we too often spend our days without knowing, let alone helping the very people who are closest to us. Let me ask, how long would it take you to realize that somebody in your neighborhood, down your street, next door to your house had died if the lawn was mowed and the bills were paid. Would it take you five years? You see, as the body of Christ, we ought to know who are around us and how we can help. For the last six weeks, we've been studying the book, When Helping Hurts, and examining our opportunities to serve. It's been eye-opening to me. I don't know about you, but it's been eye-opening to me. Of the 7 billion inhabitants on this planet, 925 million of them do not have enough to eat. That's more than the populations of the USA, Canada, and the European Union combined. Now again, it's easy to feel sorry about such statistics. But I can't feed the world, you can't feed the world, so I can kind of dismiss that from my mind. To feed the world is not my chore, but what about my neighbor next door? What do we do? What can we do? Well, there's a commitment card that you saw last week if you were here. It's in the pew right now on the, 
on the corner seats, it looks like this. It's a white card with a green corner on it. It has a list of all kinds of things that we've identified that we can do here in this community. As a matter of fact, if you can find that stack, you might just start it down the road so that everybody can have one of these because we're going to ask you to fill that out if you're ready to fill that out by the end of the service. I know some of you have been thinking and praying about this whole thing. Uh, We're not trying to make anybody feel guilty. We're not trying to put you on the spot and, and certainly, this isn't for our guests. This is for what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. But I know this, that when I hear about something, if I'm not asked to do something about it, I, I generally don't. When it's everybody's problem, it's nobody's problem, right? And so this whole commitment thing is to give you the opportunity to put your name to something and say, I can do this, and check it off. Now, there may be something that you need to think about and pray about because we've been talking about things like foster families and CASA and adoption. Those are big steps. You may not be able to do that, but you can do something. This list is not exhaustive. It is a good starting point. And you might come up with some exciting idea that will make a difference in people's lives that's not even on the list. That would be even better in some ways, that your creativity, your passions led you to do something that we don't even have on the list. For instance, recently Marty Burbank heard a sermon at his home church, the Eastside Church, Christian Church in Fullerton, California, and it changed his life. He and his wife were saving up for one of those really expensive sailboats later, but the California lawyer heard something that day that just made him feel like he shouldn't hang on to that dream, instead use that money to make a difference in people's lives. Now, The couple had been volunteering at an elementary school. They were impressed by the Rio Vista Elementary School's emphasis on higher education. What makes this a little bit more dramatic is that these kids came from a really difficult area of the city. Education was, well, that was kind of a luxury to some degree. Most of their parents didn't have any higher formal education. So the school has made a promotion and a push to get these kids to keep at it with the education because they want their lives to be better. And so knowing that money would be a problem for these kids, the Burbanks offered to use their sailboat money to pay the college tuition for all 26 kindergarten students at the school. With inflation, he estimates the total cost will be about $1.2 million to put every student through two years of community college and then two years of in-state university. And so when they went to the classroom and the teacher was uh, Tessa Ashton, uh, Tessa didn't know what they were going to do. They just said they had something they were going to present to the class. And so they told about the idea. And of course, these are kindergartners. So they don't really get the concept of, you know, somebody's going to pay for my college education. But in a few years, that will become more and more relevant as it will shift them and send them on a different trajectory in life. And who knows? Who knows how those 26 now kindergartners may reshape their world because somebody stepped in with a phenomenal gift to make a difference. By the way, this this story is close to home for us. Tessa and Corey Ashton were a part of our congregation. Corey was on our staff before they moved back to California. What a marvelous opportunity is happening there. And now, if you are thinking of something similar to do, Talk to me after the service and I'll give you the information on my granddaughter's kindergarten class so you'll know where to make the pledge. Actually, I know what you're thinking because it's what I'm thinking. I can't do that. I can't even afford a rowboat, let alone a sailboat. So how can I do something like that? And here's the problem. We hear great stories like that and we say, I can't do something like that, so why try? 
Oh, but that's not the point. The point is the heart was moved and then the gift came. It's not about how big or terrific the gift is or the service is. It's about how big the heart is. Remember, good deeds lead to good will, and good will leads to good news. It's not about the size of the gift. It's not about the size of the service. It's about the size of the heart. Does reaching others really make a difference, you say? I mean, if I do something to, to help encourage somebody, or I come alongside, does it really make any difference? Oh, yes, it makes a difference. Amy Sung was an international student here at IU and she worshiped here at Sherwood Oaks during that time and, and I have saved her a note that she sent uh, to, to, to several here, but, but it's just such a great note of encouragement. Let me read it for you again. I enjoyed the one-by-one -one Bible study with my Christian friends, which helped me to develop a better understanding of Christianity and a deeper friendship with them. I could not forget the day when I received my baptism at Sherwood Oaks. All the church members were standing up and applauding for me. I cried like a newborn baby. I felt I had been lost and I found my home again. Those mature and decent Christians that I knew from Sherwood Oaks remind me of God's love for me and set an example for me about how to be a better person. Amy's going to be in heaven someday because somebody here reached out to her, encouraged her, and changed the trajectory of her life. I don't know what they did. I don't think it was anything big, but it was heartfelt. Because it's not the size of the service, it's the size of the heart. It might have been a gift of furniture, you know. It might have started with a piece of used furniture that somebody gave that started the ball rolling. That, that might be what changes somebody else next year as a gift of your furniture. It might be a child that you help mentor in reading who will then start reading God's word and discover his grace. It might be serving as a CASA advocate that will help that child someday learn that Jesus Christ is our eternal advocate. It might be through adopting a child that your child will learn that we've all been adopted into the family of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to to love our neighbor, doing whatever we can, coming alongside of, putting our arm around one another, walking with one another through the tough times of life. And you say, oh, I, don't I don't think I've got what it takes. Don't sell yourself too short. Neuroscientist Robert Rutledge believes that research has uncovered the key to understanding happiness, low expectations. His team of scientists from University College London studied the brain activity of volunteers as they participated in a game that was for rewards. Those with lower expectations for what they would receive from the game were happier. In fact, he says, those with the lowest expectations were the happiest. Rutledge stated, happiness depends not on how well things are going, but whether things are going better or worse than expected. If you think if you think you can't measure up, that you can't make a difference, can I remind you this morning that when you're hurting, when you're hurting, your expectations are pretty low. All you really want is somebody to come alongside of you and walk with you and help you. And every one of us can do that. Here's the good news. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, when we make the journey with them, helping them when they are hurting, both of us are happier. We're happier in what we're doing. They're happier 
because someone has joined them in the journey. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that some of our folks here have shared organs. Dennis and Misty Abrams just celebrated the fifth anniversary of such a gift. Misty donated a kidney to her husband, Dennis, that gave him a new lease on life. What are the odds that a wife would be a match for her husband? The odds are 10% or less. Dennis told me that Misty was a perfect match. And now I quote, I went from 9% kidney function to 100% function the day of the transplant. Now listen, if it weren't for God making her for me, I wouldn't be able to do ministry that I do. Dennis now currently serves with Wheeler Mission right here in our community, and he is making an impact on a whole lot of lives. Dennis wouldn't be able to do that. Those lives would miss out on what they're receiving. Some of them would never perhaps have heard the message without him, and he wouldn't be here to do it without a kidney that was given by his wife. Indeed, a gift of sacrifice. But don't forget, it's not the size of the gift that matters, it's the heart with which it is given. Only in heaven will Dennis and Misty know the results of that single gift. You can do something greater, you can do something small, just do it with a big heart. Being of one heart and mind in Jesus Christ. Doing your best to make a difference outside these walls and then, large or small, then only in heaven will we know the impact of that service. Imagine what a congregation of more than 3,000 people can do if we all do something.